sure it's all right we're drinking this? We drink it when Maurice is here, right? I mean, he's the one that's always saying it. Mi casa, su casa. To the chief. To Maurice. All right. Here, here. Here, here. Is that an actual phrase from Spanish? Mi casa, su casa? Or is that something that, like, Americans invented and then attributed it to, um, to Spanish people? You know, that's really funny because it's so prevalent in media and it's always, like, white people or not, you know, Spanish-speaking people who say mi casa, su casa. So just a quick internet search does seem to say that it originated from like 1800s Spanish tradition. Uh, but there is also from seven years ago, a Reddit, uh, explain it like I'm five. Why do some English speakers say mi casa, su casa, when it's not really something Spanish speakers ever say? I don't I mean, I don't know if that's actually true. Do Spanish speakers ever say it? I, I don't know. It, apparently it originates from Spain, but... Uh, according to this person's post, this person's experience, they've never heard a, they never thought it to be common. But again, this person, we don't even know who this is. Some rando on Reddit. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't, I don't spend enough time with Spanish speaking people right there. But it is, it is funny that it's always, you know, it's just like usually someone who doesn't speak Spanish just says it, you know? And I think, um, shoot, I don't know if this was actually in Northern Exposure or something I watched recently. Must have been something else, but maybe this will jog your memory, Charles. If someone in Northern Exposure said "su casa, mi casa," like they said it, but they said it backwards because oh, they're kind of that dumb. Sounds, yeah, that sounds familiar. Oh, gosh, I don't know. It might have been in a Northern it. Exposure episode, but I mean that I don't know. It kind of sounds like something we would have brought it up. I'm sure mm. if if they said that. We miss a lot of things, Dev. <laughs> what are we What are we talking about here, Lee? Charles, we're talking about the TV series Northern Exposure. It's a 1990s uh, CBS comedy drama series, uh, very popular back in the day. And we are the Northern Overexposure podcast. Every episode, we overanalyze every episode of Northern Exposure. And for this season, we're in the sixth season of the TV series. For this season, we are inviting on fans of the show every episode to give their take of what they thought of this episode and what they think of season six in general. Uh, if you're just diving in here now, I would warn you that most fans of Northern Exposure even uh, say themselves that the sixth season is not the best. But Charles, we're having a fun time anyway. So far, we haven't had any egregiously bad episodes. Uh, I should introduce myself. My name is Lee. I'm a big fan of this show, one of my favorite shows of all time. And Charles, this is your first time watching every episode, so you've got the more fresh take. That's right. This is my first time watching all of the episodes of Northern Exposure for the first time. And I want to kick it off, like we've been doing for all the past episodes, of my overall thoughts for the episode. Let me jump in and say that we're talking about episode 12, Mi Casa, Su Casa, the title coming from this soundbite here. Right, 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 right. I, I want to say it's good. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's my favorite, but it, but it is good. Okay. I, but I, I would also like to preface though, like, it's good in the way that like, it's good for season six standards. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a fine episode. It's uh, it's yeah. not my favorite episode of Northern Exposure. And, you know, we haven't yet gone off the deep end. We've Surprisingly, we still have Joel here. I thought, from my memory of this season, I thought that he, like, really goes away for a long time. Um, but 
for most of these episodes, we are going back to Mananash and we see Joel there. So even though he's removed from Sicily, Joel and, you know, the actor Rob Morrow is getting billed for most of these episodes. Uh, Not for long, though. I mean, you know, Charles, that Rob Morrow leaves the show and coming up soon will be his final episode. This is not his final episode. So we've got a few more in the canon, but I won't spoil when that will be. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just echo what you're saying, Charles. I think it's a fine episode of Northern Exposure. Nothing stuck out as a particularly dull plot line, but, you know, from a show that is so surprising, I I should also say this episode wasn't like to stand out in that aspect either, but just, you know, just a good, fine show. Well, talk to me about the writers and the director of the episode. All right. So the director was Daniel Atias. He directed previous episodes, Revelations. I think that was season three. And then Three Doctors, which would have been the season five premiere. Um, Maybe Revelations was four. I'll just double check that number real fast. And then the other episode that he directed before this was First Snow, which was that uh, very fan favorite episode. Mm, Okay. Okay. Revelations was season four. Season four, episode 12. Uh, So one in season four, one in season five. No, two in season five with First Snow. And now... Mikasa Sukasa in season six. He's got one more episode in this uh, series, like one more later in season six. The writers were Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green, who have written all over this TV series. They will also go on to write with David Chase in The Sopranos. And um, the air date, January 11th, 1995. This is a Wednesday, where, as I mentioned in the last episode that we did, the show used to air on Monday nights, and now it's going to air on Wednesday nights until it ends. All right. Well, we have the three plot lines that all center around home in some way or another right there. Okay. So which one of the plot lines do you want to go down first? So we got off the top of my head. Let's see if I can do this. <laughs> you definitely got Shelly and Holling trying to purchase their home from Officer Szymanski. You have Ed house-sitting for Maurice, and you have Joel with Marilyn paying him a visit for a potch dinner. And there's like a little bit of Chris stuff, but that's mostly mixed in with Ed. Okay. Oh, yeah. I was trying to think about what happens with Chris. That's right. Yeah, that, that, that can fit in with Ed's plotline. Why don't we focus on Shelly and Holling? And they're trying to purchase their first home. Uh, and as you mentioned before, it, it involves Officer Szymanski. Officer Szymanski is trying to move away from Sicily. I guess she's got too long of a commute. So they're looking at buying her house. Let's go ahead and jump into the first scene that we see them in this episode. Maggie, as we know before, is sort of like a, you call that a realtor? Like Mm -hmm. like she's showing houses uh, to Holling and Shelly and they're in Officer Szymanski's house here. And it seems like from what we can gather in this scene, Maggie has been showing them around a lot of different places. And this might be the last one that they have scheduled, at least for this day. But it seems like it has all the things that Shelly and Holling want. And um, I wrote down in my notes, I think we begin to even see Holling has some very particular demands just from what Maggie's saying. She says, oh, and they even have the uh, left-handed medicine cabinets for you, Holling. Would have never expected that that would be a thing. Um, And Holling 
bemoans some small little things that, you know, maybe there's like a rickety door frame or some like a towel hanger is loose. Um, and Maggie's like, we're going to make a fix it list. It's going to be great. So we get to see, at least for me, what I was noticing was Shelly's um, sort of eager for this. And Holling is maybe a little more skeptical about getting a house. We can kind of see that even in this first scene. Right. As a person that just recently sold a place, like I, I sold a condo that I lived in right. in college. It is such a hassle. Did you have to do all sorts of things like Samansky would do in this episode? Like you have to oh, make yeah. a lot of repairs? Yeah. Like, and like, it makes you mad. But then you also think like, if you were the buyer, you would also be asking these same things. Mm-hmm. So it, it, the anger is misplaced. Then it's just... I, I was just having to fix up like a lot of like little small things mm-hmm. that you, you just don't think about. Like, let's say like, like the windowsill, like there might be like a little bit of a, like a dent in it, like an indention and you got to get out putty, wood putty and fill it in and paint over it. It's just like a whole thing. Yeah. So it's a bunch of like those little small things that just keep piling up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Shelly even picks up on this when hauling is like asking for, all these little small repairs, Shelly says, uh, it's kind of doesn't seem fair getting so nitpicky after Maggie's shown us every joint in the greater Nabe. Um, did, do you know a Nabe? I'm assuming that's neighborhood, maybe? Yeah, that's what I thought, too. I was like, Nabe, Nabe, neighborhood, neighborhood. It's like, that's <laughs> it that's got to be it right there. I love all of Shelly's um slang i guess and sometimes i'm like is that even a thing but it i guess it makes sense with nabe and neighborhood well it looks like that um i don't know if they talk about it in this scene but officer samansky says that she has to go on a six hour commute like surely there is a better place to live between you and six (laughs) hours of whatever location you're going to i think she says sleet mute which I feel like uh, Maggie does a lot of runs to sleep mute or something like in the plane. So that would make more sense. Like we have driving that distance is quite a lot, obviously six hour. I don't know if that's round trip, but round trip would be half the day. Exactly. That's all like that. That's <laughs> you impossible. You get like one hour in sleep mute. That is like the equivalency. Like, gosh, what is like an egregious one? I can think. Okay. Like Baton Rouge to Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> that is like a kind of a six hour drive right there. That is how far you commuting every day. Yeah. I mean, it really, it just doesn't make any sense in the real world, but this is Alaska. So we just imagine things being so desolate and far apart and remote that it's like, oh, sure, that makes sense. But if you think about it, what, what realistically, what work is Samansky getting done? And it makes sense why Samansky's just trying to get out of Sicily. Like she really, she desperately needs a buyer. We find, we found this out later. But at first, it just seems like hauling is going to make so many demands. This is just not going to. This is just not going to work for Szymanski. It's too much, asking too much. But that is an interesting development in the storyline and the plot. Here is that Szymanski really needs to move so badly that she will cave, or you know, it's more likely. Yeah, I think the key takeaway for this scene that I thought was going to play a bigger role. And maybe it does, but maybe I'm not giving it more credit than it's worth. But Shelly makes a point to say, us in a real house, just like a real family, just like everybody else. And I thought that that was going to be, like, I thought their plot line was going to be about what it means to be a family, the identity that comes across with it. And in a way it does. But I, I think that ultimately this is more about 
more about what Hauling wants than what Shelley wants. True. It does seem to skew towards Hauling in the end. I think maybe you could say it's more about societal norms too, you know, like it's more about what's normal for a family to have a house. But yeah, I do like where the conversation goes on that throughout the episode. Just to get us out of this scene at the very end, Maggie says, okay, now we make an offer and then we close on the sale. And if she accepts, you guys get the house. And then just immediately after that, you see a two shot of Shelly and Hauling and the expression on each of their faces is uh, telling a lot. Like Shelly, as I said, is so very eager and Hauling is feigning excitement. You can see he's like trying to hide his anxiety about this. And that brings us to the next scene where they're doing the final run through. They're with Officer Szymanski. Maggie's showing them all the new improvements that they've gotten, like a new septic tank. It's a lot of stuff. It's like a she did like new gravel in the driveway. It's crazy. Yeah, that's so expensive. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, and it's really like, this is so, like, there's no way you can actively plan around this. But when we were sewing our place, um, a lot of the things were breaking down. So let's say a uh, a water heater lasts about, Mm, like eight eight years maybe? Is it 12 years? I forgot. It's some sort of period of time. (laughs) Well, when we bought the place, it it must have been brand new or something like that Mm. because it got to its end when we were selling it. (laughs) And then we had to replace it. So it's a bunch of stuff that I keep thinking what they're going through. What Officer Szymanski is like, all right, it just broke down. So if you're trying to sell a place, sell it like in between, like when your appliances are about to break down, but then the buyer doesn't know. (laughs) It's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so they get one last look over, as you said, and we can see Szymanski's eager to sell and Holling is just trying to come up with more excuses not to buy. Um, they, they they step outside, uh, Shelly and Holling step outside as they're getting ready to leave and you can kind of, you get to see the, uh, the delivery truck that they got in Sons of the Tundra, episode nine. Uh, you can see that in the background, they go stand by it. And Holling just has this attitude that he's playing through this scene. And he mentions uh, just as they're walking out of the house, they see the picnic table sort of in the front of the house. And Holling wants to claim that as well. And uh, it's Maggie's just like, okay, sure, whatever. Let me go negotiate with Szymanski. And so we have Holling and Shelly at the delivery truck outside, like in the driveway. Shelly's maybe upset with Holling being this way. And then we get Maggie and Szymanski sort of further off in the distance as we see them, we see them from further away. And you can see that Szymanski's like throwing her arms up, you know, upset and Maggie waves them away, like gives them the signal, like I'll call you later. But we can see that this is just not going to be a happy agreement uh, right now between the buyers and the seller. Yeah. I'm surprised that, um, Maggie is acting as the agent for both the buyer and the seller. Oh. I think uh, from my understanding, there's a bu- there's an agent on both sides. Mm-hmm. And the buyer and the sellers themselves usually don't see eye to eye. Mm-hmm. Like physically. I mean, like phys- I mean, I yeah. guess you could also say figuratively, but <laughs> I mean, like physically, they don't see each other. The agents are the ones that are like being the middleman. Yeah. And communicating each party's thoughts. Interesting. Um, and then like at the signing, you can meet the people that you're buying and or selling to, but you can also do it by uh, like a signatory from afar, like as long as it's by a courier or something like that. Mm. 
Um, that's what we had did. Yeah. So we actually never even locked eyes with the seller. But mm-hmm. uh, this is the problem, though, is that when you do meet each other, yeah. you're going to like anything, any thoughts that you convey, like they're obviously going to see it. Exactly. Yeah. You can see this. Uh, you can see this a- attitude dripping off of hauling and Samansky throwing her arms up. It's it's going to be a rocky relationship. Let's go to the next scene where Shelly is going into Ruthann's store. I, I think it's for... Grape stripes. Grape. Yeah, some sort of like chewy candy or treat for Randy. And um, she bumps into Samansky there, who is herself. She's buying some sort of like sleep aid or stay awake aid, basically, because she has the six-hour commute, as she said. So yeah, she's got like no sleep or whatever, like no, no drowls or something. I don't remember what she called it. It was some made up name. I think, I don't think that's a real brand. It could be, but yeah. So she, Samansky lets Shelly know her feelings about her husband. She says, your husband, Mrs. Vincor, the man's a chiseler. She says directly to Shelly that she's not going to give in on the picnic table. That she's keeping the picnic table and Holland can, you know, just keep trying to chisel away, but it's not going to happen. Yeah, chiseler. H- have you ever heard of that before? No, but um, it seems like a very fitting insult. I-, I think that makes sense. Yeah. I'm wondering if I've, I don't think I've ever heard that spoken aloud. Maybe read it. But yeah, why? It seems kind of novel to you? Yeah. Um, I was trying to ascribe like further meaning to it, like somebody that chisels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chisels kind of relating to the foundation of a house. Yeah. But otherwise, I was like, okay, I get what she's meaning. She's saying, like, give an inch, they take a mile. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. she doesn't see the subtext that's happening between Shelly and Holling. She's only seeing this from her angle, which is just like, oh, this is just a very greedy individual. Right. Yeah. Right. She doesn't see the full... There's... I mean, Maggie will point it out later, and I don't think Maggie super cares either. I think it's in the next scene, right? Where she's basically oh, yeah. like, you're all, all you're doing is wasting your time and you're wasting my time. Like I'm tired of showing you around. It's like, you're doing yourself a disservice by not acknowledging hauling that you don't even want this house. You could be more honest about that. But on top of that, you're wasting your friend's time. Like, come on, like I'm not going to ignore this anymore. Um, but this is the scene where Maggie arrives in the brick with good news and she says, oh, I've got good news. And Holling's like, about what? He's like, the house. Of course, the house. She says that Samansky's going to do whatever it takes to move to sleep mute. She's going to give the picnic table, the lawn chairs, whatever it takes. And um, Holling begins to complain about the shingles on the roof and some sort of health hazard. Like, they're not, I don't know, they're some sort of synthetic shingles that have these fumes that are chemical. Uh, that are toxic potentially. And Maggie is like, it doesn't matter. Like you're, it's not about the shingles. It's about you. I lied about the (laughs) picnic table anyway. Like (laughs) she just made that all up. I needed you to like agree to this, but I can tell whatever, whatever we do, you're not going to want this house. You don't want any house. She says. That brings us to the climax of the plot line with Shelly and Holling, where they're back at the brick, the upstairs room where they live at. And Shelly erupts and tells Holling that the reason she's so mad at him is that this is just what regular families do. They get married, they have a child, they buy a house, and then they have the picket fence. 
It's the American dream. Mm-hmm. And hauling saying like, no, we can be right here where we can be with the people and we're right next to our job and we can go downstairs for conversation and coffee and we don't have to travel. And there's like this awesome playground that's only like presumably pretty close, but they mm-hmm. never really, they, they don't talk about how close or far yeah. away it is. It's <laughs> just like relatively distance. And that's his argument. And then Shelly's like, no one lives above a bar for like a family. Like, yeah. That's just not happening right here. She's got some good arguments here. Um, I think one of the lines is like, you know, we can live above the bar. We can, Holling's like, we can go downstairs and have coffee with our friends. And then Shelly's like, yeah. And then what's Randy supposed to do? Kick cans in the alley? You know, like she needs a, a fostering nice place to grow up. You know, um, oh, there's a lot, there's some really interesting stuff that we see later. I guess we can talk about it right now, but Shelly talks about, growing up in like the trailer park too, which is like, you know, not always doesn't, isn't always the best place to raise a child, but she has fond memories of that too, which we'll get to. That's not necessarily helping in this scene, but what's happening in this scene, as I said, Shelly's making some pretty convincing arguments for why they need a stable home environment for Randy. And Holling is also making the arguments of like, you know, I think it's beautiful because this plot line is just all about them communicating it better. At first, Holling completely doesn't let his intentions or his feelings be known. Maybe he's trying to hide it from himself even. But he does have some uh, interesting arguments here about, you know, being closer to uh, their friends in this community, you know. There are two sides to this coin, and they'll be, you know, representing both. I, I did want to play a soundbite of this scene because I really do think Shelley's performance is pretty great. And aren't we happy? Right here, right now. I mean, we're in the center of things, Shelley. Best of both worlds, really. We need a little time to ourselves. We skip right upstairs. Want some lively talk or a cup of coffee? It's right there, down below. Plus, we get to work at home. Well, hunky dee. And what's Randy supposed to do? Kick cans in the alley? We do pay taxes for a nice winter play, Jim. A whirly a clean sandbox, and plenty of other young children to play with. Yeah, and where are they crashing? Above a bar? No, hauling houses. Because that's what people do. They get married, they pop out a rug rat, and they picket fence it. You never saw the Brady Bunch? H-O-U-S-E, period. What was that? That was a baby at the end. That was baby Miranda crying uh, because the door slammed. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, all the things we already talked about uh, in this scene, but I just really I do commend the performance there. It was really good. Let's move on to the next scene, which would be Ed. Oh, no, this is uh, Ed's storyline. Well, yeah, yeah. That's a little bit more toward Ed's side. Yeah. The next one is um, <laughs> Shelly's pulling up to Officer Szymanski's place. She wants one last look at it, you know. Kind of just feeling it out, trying to see that, you know, is is this something I want to commit to? And she convinces Officer Szymanski to give her two minutes. And this is where I actually, I don't do this often, where I'll I'll be like, I think you should have done it this way, Mr. Director. Like, because <laughs> like, it's like such backseat directing right here. But Shelly comes into the house, it's completely empty, and she goes through the whole charade of 
taking off her jacket, putting on a chair, then realizing that, oh, it needs to be put up into its proper place. She gets all the right things assorted and then puts it up and then goes to the couch, sits down. And there's a lot of negative space in that shot Mm -hmm. where it makes it look empty and it makes it look like she is diminished inside this house. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was going to happen when Shelly was going through that whole ordeal of putting the coat uh, on the chair and all that, I thought she was going to mime out her daily routine of what it would be living in this house. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was going to be like a minute, two minute segment of her just silently moving and pretending like this is how my life would be if I was inside this house. Yeah. And then she would be like, you know, just moving about, maybe even pretend cooking, just taking out things, just acting out this whole scenario. Then, you know, whatever the plot required her of, it would have moved on from there. But instead, uh, it's a much simpler one. It gets across kind of the same message, but, you know, she puts her jacket on the little stand and then sits down on the couch. But, man, if I was like, if I was directing it, I would have totally done it that way, in my way. Yeah, and I do think the, like you're saying, it's kind of, it kind of still serves that same message. You know, like I kind of got that sense. It's like, okay, Shelly is sitting here trying to imagine what it would be like if she lived here every day without saying any words, you know, um, though she doesn't act it out. The way the scene ends is it does feel more open-ended though, because it does end in sort of that wide shot of her just sitting on the couch silently, maybe thinking about something and we don't know what it's open-ended. Um, so it leaves you wanting a little more, thankfully it's not the last scene obviously. So we get to maybe uncover what's going on in the next scene, but yeah, kind of, kind of seems like maybe it for you, Charles. At least it was like you kind of want a little more out of that, and it, it does end in a way that kind of leaves you like more open ended. Yeah. One small thing I want to note, and they appear throughout the episode. I'm still trying to tie them all together into one thematic message. But in this scene, the the couch shot right there, mm-hmm. there is a bust. I don't know what metal that is. I'm not even gonna pretend. Let's 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 say it's like iron or something like that. <laughs> Some sort of iron bust of a wolf oh. or a dog. And then there's a painting of a man and a dog behind Shelley. So two symbols of an animal mm-hmm. being placed in a shot. Throughout this episode, we actually see that a lot. Statues of eagles yeah. or stuffed buffalo and bear, a bear head as well. Lots of animal imagery inside places. Hmm. Yeah, I wish I had tried to figure out what that could have symbolized. But listener, if you have any thoughts, definitely write us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at northernoverpod. I'd love to hear your analysis if you have any uh, of those symbols of animals here. But the next scene is Shelly walking over to the indoor playground that Holling had mentioned, that they pay their tax dollars towards this indoor playground. And inside... Well, hang on. Before we even get inside... Oh, go ahead. On the outside, there's no windows at the front. (laughs) Like, it's It's just pure solid brick with the wooden door. (laughs) The doors themselves don't even have a window. Yeah. (laughs) It looks like a... Like a prison. It seems like inside there is some sort of like light coming in somewhere, but there, I don't there's know if windows we see. on the side. Okay, there is. Okay, yeah. <laughs> just like the front door is just like it's as flat as you can just make like it. Like a empty warehouse or something, which basically is what it is with um, playground equipment inside. Well, Hollings in there playing with Randy. 
and he's like spinning her around on the little merry. What do you call that thing? It's not merry-go-round. It's a I call it a carousel. Carousel. I, I don't thing, know if that's actually thing. it. Yeah, one of whatever that is. Um, and this is where Shelley and Holling talk about their childhoods. I mentioned that Shelley remembers her childhood growing up in a trailer park, but she remembers fondly the sandpit that they used to all play at. And then Holling remembers a jungle gym or something like that, that his uncle Frank would play with him like he's doing now with, with Randy. If there was time, he said, whenever there was time, uncle Frank would play with me. You know, they kind of remark how all the other kids here um, are hanging out with Randy. They love Randy. They're playing with Randy and they can't seem to get enough of her. This is, I guess this is the last scene with them, right? Because this is where Hauling is like, look, if you want a house, uh, let's keep looking for a house. I'll grow into house living, or at least I'll try, he says. And Shelly has the about face where she says, we live above a bar. We're a family now. Who says we can't live above a bar if we want to? I think Shelly's basically saying like, uh, who cares about Samansky's house It's if it's not close to our community here? And they talk, I think Holling's like, yeah, let's stick to the city life or whatever. There's one, there's one argument I think Shelly says is like, you know, it would kind of be a bummer to look out the kitchen window, like look, look out the window and see uh, Randy playing all alone in the front yard. You know, here we have this community of friends and they all love her. So I guess it's working out. Yeah, this is, I'm not a fan of this ending because Shelly's argument is that, when you have a house, you got to put out the coasters and make sure everything's just so. Mm-hmm, yeah. And she wants Randy to be closer to the other children so that they can play together. She doesn't want her to be alone, which I understand. But on a logical level, do they really live that far away from this place? Because I imagine like Sicily's not like so, so large that it's a 30 minute drive. Mm-hmm to this little warehouse thing from where Officer Shemansky was living. I could be wrong. Maybe Officer Shemansky really does live kind of further away from the city. Mm-hmm, yeah, I think that's what we're supposed to expect. Maybe not 30 minutes, but but yeah, a little bit away from the main strip or whatever. Yeah, but the thing is, is that when you're living, the place that they're living at right now, you would still put coasters out though. Yeah, right? right? It, it, that's where <laughs> that's I, I, you lost me a little bit. <laughs> And the thing I don't like about it is because Shelly's whole thing, this whole episode, was wanting to get this house. And Holling is the one being stubborn. And he doesn't offer any conclusive rebuttal to why he wants to stay above the brick. It just seems like it's because, well, he just doesn't want to move. He is just against the idea of packing up and moving to another home. I know that at the end, he says, no, we can keep looking for a house. But I, I just don't think there's enough growth on either one of the two characters when this resolution happens. Like, they spin the carousel with hauling on it. And, like, that's almost symbolic of the entire plot line because he's moving laterally. He goes all around. He still stays in the same place. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I saw this plot line where I was a little disappointed that, that neither of the two showed genuine growth or at least, like... A better reason for wanting to stay where they're at now. Yeah. I mean, obviously something happened to Shelly when she sat in Samansky's house, but we didn't really fully get that other than just like 
her trying to imagine what it would be like to live there and not liking it, like actually trying to put herself there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's not a very convincing argument. Uh, I mean, at the end, it's it's just the the message to me is just them being like, you know, we want to be closer to community and there are definitely aspects of city life versus country life or, you know, maybe a little bit less city life. I don't know what you would call Szymanski's house. There are aspects to each of those that are pros and cons. And I think they've just settled on the Sicily way, just being like close to this tight knit small community. Yeah. I just wish they would have demonstrated this earlier in the episode, like the warehouse and the kids and the aspects of living at the brick so that you could better land the ending of home is where the heart is. Instead, Mm, this is all coming at the last five minutes where they're going to the gym and they're seeing how life is, but we're spending the whole episode of them arguing about like, we need to move. No, I don't want to move. No, look at how great this house is. They should have explored the other aspect of Sicily a little bit better to better sell this message. We get that in the scene when like Shelly's combing her hair, which is kind of like halfway through this plot line that we've described when Shelly's the Brady Bunch thing, you know, and they both Mm -hmm. kind of argue their cases. So to me, just looking at it retrospectively here, it really is just kind of the storyline could have been more about home is where the heart are. Yeah, as I just said, home is where the heart is, like mm-hmm. the community. But really, I think what, they, what they've accomplished here is more of like communication, you know, problems with their communication and then talking it through and then, you know, being able to realize in themselves what they really want. But no, I'll, I'll hand it to you. It's not like a particularly profound ending. It is like a switch that you don't expect. So maybe the writers were just like, yeah, we did it. We had like a little flip ending there and Shelly comes around and sees, sees things. It almost feels like Hauling wins the argument when he doesn't even really have an argument. You know? Right, right. That, that's, <laughs> that's that was my major like concern it. Yeah. with it. And that's why I felt like both of the characters didn't feel like the resolution for their plot had a, it felt very earned. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't feel, feel very fulfilling for Shelly to come around to this when it's like the whole time she was pretty, it made more sense. Her argument made more sense, you know, to me at least. Right, right. I think it just needed a little bit more, uh, just more padding, just more realization of like what Cecily has to offer. Well, let's rewind to the beginning and focus on Ed's plot line for this episode. The Mikasa Sukasa soundbite that we heard, it starts off with Ed and Maurice in Maurice's house and Maurice is getting ready to leave. He's like maybe packing up or grabbing, you know, getting ready to uh, leave his home and he's going down this checklist with Ed, this, that, and the other. And it's becomes apparent that Ed is going to be house sitting for Maurice. Maurice is going to Arkansas, I think. Yeah, Arkansas to go boar hunting with his buddies, Al and Wally. And... Um, you know, this is an exciting prospect. Ed seems a little nervous and he's like reminding himself, going over the list, repeating everything that Maurice says. And Maurice is like, it's just house sitting. It's not brain surgery. And yeah, I mean, Maurice is ready to get going. He's uh, just about to be out the door when Michelle Capra is waiting for him there. She's hand delivering her article that she's got for the Sicily News and World Telegram. She says it's her crafts piece Um, and she's, you know, it's just, I guess it's just a way to show that she's really eager for this new job. 
she's gone above and beyond. Like she, I think she said something like, it comes up later in the episode, but she like did this special feature on some sort of like, I don't even remember. It was like some some crafts person, you know, right? Mm-hmm. Like a glass blower or something like that. Like they they did some, Michelle did some sort of special feature. You know, it's like, I'm sorry, I might be a little late on this, but I wanted to add this in. Uh, yeah, I mean, Maurice is just like, all right, cool. I'm going to read this one, get back. I got to go. We leave and Ed is just kind of like standing there. Almost you can feel he's daunted by this massive responsibility. Right. Have you ever house sat for somebody before? I have. I think it's a lot of fun. You know, you get to really? like live in someone else's house. Like, like you see what uh, Ed gets to do. I mean, like I definitely didn't pull the stuff that Ed was doing, but it can be fun. Yeah, I've never house sat before. I've always wanted to though. Yeah. I always thought that could be really fun. Yeah. Uh, the next scene is going to be where Ed finally lets loose. So he's eating milk and cookies. He looks at a buffalo, like a stuffed buffalo head mm-hmm. on a mantle. And then he sees a bobblehead. I don't know if there's like a specific term for it, but yeah. he's just kind of like, I, I just wrote down, he's like kind of walking around silently, just looking at stuff. Almost feels like he's a, um, you know, it's just, it's just perfect body language for being like an uncomfortable guest in someone's house. Like what's that, uh, what's that like meme of like Quentin Tarantino, like walking around someone's house, like alone, well, just looking what at What movie is that from? It's not a, it's a real life. Like he was like in some house and he's just like looking in their little cabinets and just kind of standing. He's like the only person in this house, like alone. <laughs> like I have never heard of this I'll, one. I'll find it. And actually, <laughs> let me see if I can find it real fast just to show you. Okay. All right. The, it's on knowyourmeme.com. Quentin Tarantino walking around alone in an unfamiliar home. Here, I'm going to send it to you. I might be able to find it. Yeah. <laughs> alone in an unfamiliar house. I have never seen this. <laughs> He's just like standing in the kitchen. There's like a profile shot of him in front of like a painting. He's looking in a mirror. He's looking never, at like a tea yeah. set. <laughs> so that's what I got from Ed just walking around taking extra care not to spill any crumbs of his cookies, but it starts with him like at that long dinner table and he kind of like let, you know, stretches his legs. And then finally I think what you're getting at Charles is he begins to let loose. Like he lights the fireplace and goes to recline on this like fancy chair. Yeah. Well, it starts once he hits the bobblehead, the bobblehead was still mm, it was stationary. Mm, yeah. And then once he cracks the surface, uh-huh. can't uncrack it. Bobblehead. <laughs> if you actually notice it, it doesn't stop bobbling. It just, nice. it just keeps going. So, you know, it's a little bit of a symbol for Ed. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he he like I said, he he goes and lets loose, though the scene doesn't end without him um, you know, kind of losing his composure for just a moment when he spills some cookie crumbs and he's like, Oh, better clean that up. Mm-hmm. But he's he's letting loose a little bit. The next time we see him, he's looking slick, he's in a smoking jacket which later is revealed to be like Maurice's smoking jacket, which, I mean, I don't know. This looks like perfectly tailored for Ed. Like Ed is a lot smaller than Maurice, and this looks like really good on him. Uh, Anyway, he's like just walking around in this really nice looking smoking jacket, and Chris is coming in to borrow Maurice's Hasselblad, which is like a fancy camera. And Ed was like, oh, Maurice didn't really say anything about that. And Chris was like, oh, he wouldn't have. Like this just came up. Doc Capper gave me some advice, like, 
he thinks like my artwork could be good. Like I, sh- I should do like photography and he might know a buyer. So there might be an, a market for my art basically. And I don't know, like it was kind of hard for me. I wanted to see what your thought was on this, but this is what I got from what was happening with like Ed in this scene is maybe a little more on edge and then kind of, again, like relaxes more. Like when he's talking with Chris, he like also like feels, I think maybe Chris remarks about the jacket. I can't remember, but he's like, Ed starts to like stroke the jacket a little bit and sort of like notice that he's wearing it. And then he sort of like changes as if like the jacket is like possessing him or something. Yeah. Uh, I For a second, I thought like, is that how you wear a smoking jacket? Because I've seen that before. Isn't that like, like, oh, have you ever seen like, like he puts his hand in it? Is that what you're saying? Like he puts his hand yeah, in yeah, yeah, in yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've seen that before in old military photos. Yeah. That must like be William it. Tecumseh Sherman. If you look at his photo, he's got like his hand. There's like a jacket right there. Yeah. And I was like, is that how? Like perpetually like, like grabbing an envelope from your jacket or something like that. Yeah, that's like the pose that you had. So I thought that maybe that was it. Uh, I, I think that most of us can realize that this is where Ed is transitioning to become more like Maurice. Mm-hmm. He's starting to say like, no, you should definitely go go try to sell those art pieces. Try to make a profit off of it. Yeah. Not art for art's <laughs> sake. Let's go watch stuff on the television. You know, yeah, let's Chris, just have a good time. Chris suggests, he's like, you know, there's like a Washington Bullets and Seattle Supersonics game tonight. He sees the big, you know, Maurice's big TV in the background. It's like, we could watch it here, you know? And Ed is, I think, gung-ho, but he's like, we got to be careful about the crumbs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, here is where my attention to the statues comes back in. Oh, yeah. Because the last scene with Ed with Milk and the Cookies, it ends with a shot of the bear, mm-hmm. like a bear head, mm-hmm. on the table. And when this scene ends, the camera pivots to a bust of an eagle or a falcon. I, I don't know. It's one of those two birds. Mm-hmm. A, a large bird right there. And I mean, like right off the top of my head. Okay. So you got a bear, land-based animal. Uh-huh. Now you got an eagle. It flies. <laughs> so like maybe we're making a statement about Ed like getting a little bit more loose. Yeah. It's a very it's a very deliberate camera move. Like the dolly like pushes in on this wood sculpture as Chris and Ed exit. Mm -hmm. And it is an eagle that is catching a fish in its claws. Um, Yeah. What could the animal nature of what? I don't, I don't even know. Trying to, trying to draw some sort of reading. I don't know. Cause you got that dog from the dog officer Szymanski Mm -hmm. in the, in the photos or the paintings Mm. Mm and both. So I don't know. Feels a very intentional, but I'm, I'm drawing a little bit of a blank right here. Yeah. Well, the next time we see Ed, he's got even more guests over watching TV. We've got Walt is there with Hayden Keys and this other guy. We've seen him before and he's been introduced. His name is Owen. They say his name again in this scene. That's how I remember. And they're all watching TV, eating Maurice's food. Like Ed comes out with a tray of like stinky blue cheese and ham or something. And um, Chris arrives now with a nine inch nail CD that they can blast during the uh, big pay-per-view match that they're going to watch later. So more expenses through Maurice's account here. Ed is like, Chris, did you remember to bring back that camera? And Chris is like, oh, no, not not quite yet. I He said something like he ended up drinking and playing cards at the brick. So just procrastinating on it. Why? Why is it whenever there's like any negative activity, like Tom Fullery shenanigans, just something you don't want to associate with. 
Hayden Keys is always there. <laughs> no, it just makes sense. Like, He's got to be here. Yeah. <laughs> like the town. I don't know. I just feel like the townsfolk, like if you're not with him, you must hate his guts. <laughs> the, that's the problem is that everyone loves Hayden, even though he sucks, man. Like, I mean, but he's great. Okay, let's, we love let, him. Like off the top of my head, like let me let me see if I can just list his crimes. Like <laughs> imitating he, he a peace officer insurance? or something. Someone said he imitated a peace officer. I think. Oh, I did think he? Chris mentioned that at one point. Oh my! We God. didn't see that okay, on so you screen. Got that. But go ahead. Um, about insurance. The 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 insurance payment that he lied about uh, with the broken leg. Then he was a huge jerk to Marilyn about the the Huskies. Oh, wait. And then there's a there's another one. What happened with him and the Huskies? That was him. Oh, he was like at the brick. And oh, he was just making. He fun saw the of advertisement. Her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's and broken into some... Joel's office that's, twice. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the he's Cup of Joe episode was apparently him. And then the other one was like we. We feel bad for him because the other time he broke into Joel's office was to steal like those placebo pills. And it was because Maurice bribed him with like a, a special ladder. And Hayden himself was like, oh, come on, Maurice, don't do that. Like, don't offer the ladder. You know, I want the ladder. And so like, he he felt obligated to break into Joel's office. <laughs> okay. So like he, he's like the town criminal. <laughs> Basically. like what he is. So And now he's here. Just like drinking, drinking, drinking the stuff. and smoking the cigars. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that like the other characters are doing it too, but it almost seems like to me that they're doing it out of appreciation of the goods. And Hayden Keys is like, if I knew this place was empty, I definitely would have <laughs> came here and stole everything. <laughs> yeah, well, that's Hayden for you. Like I said, like he's just the common you know, thief, like the common bad guy, but we still love him here. So, um, all right. Well, yeah, that's where we get the soundbite that we opened the episode with the Mikasa Sukasa. And, um, actually did, I forgot, did Maurice say that like in the first scene or no? No, I don't think he does. Okay. So, so this is just the first, this is the first time we hear it. Mikasa Sukasa. So, uh, next scene Obviously, they're just there. This scene ends with them like eating, drinking, and the pay per view match is about to come on. And Ed seems to be oblivious to any sort of expense or damage or, yeah, what could happen to this house. The next scene is a full on, like, oh, no, 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 this is before. No, this, no, 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 this, this one more. Which is actually, this is a cool scene. It's like Eugene and Ed. They're over now in Ed's little shack, like his little house. With the intention of grabbing a couple VHS tapes, The Hustler and The Color of Money, because they're going to watch that while they play pool on on Maurice's big TV. I think it's funny. Eugene says, it's just like going to the movies, but at Maurice's, you know, the big TV. <laughs> and this is probably the first time in a long time that Ed has been home because he's been house sitting and kind of pretty quickly, Ed is just seems to be dissatisfied with this room. And he's like, yeah, we got to get out of here. Like he's grabbing onto like a blanket. He's looking at how, how uh, low the ceiling is. And the first thing when, when Eugene's like, we should probably go head back soon because this or that. And Ed's like, yeah, let's get out of here. <laughs> like, I don't like this. <laughs> and then it gets to that scene that you were talking about. The big lavish dinner scene where they invite everybody, including Hayden. He's dared. <laughs> <laughs> you know, eating up a storm right there. Of course. Yeah. Ed has ordered a lot of stuff. He has ordered the whole 
nine yards of all this fancy stuff. Mm-hmm. Got flowers flown in, and he's opening up the wine bottles, and everyone's having a good time. But Ed is now fully morphed into Maurice. He's resembling <laughs> Maurice. And the dialogue is remarkably similar to what Maurice would say. Yeah, yeah. Especially when he's grilling Chris. He says, you know, you're really just drinking beer and playing cards. You're not working on your art. Don't try to fool us. Mm-hmm. Come on, man. Like, you're just a lazy bum. Yeah, he calls him lazy and he's like dodging his responsibilities and deadlines. Another quote from that is, uh, Ed says, opportunity knocks and Chris is tiptoeing out the old back door. And, you know, it's like everyone at the party is kind of like, wow, like Ed is kind of being a blowhard. Like, what's going on? Like, they don't say anything, but you can just sense it. And Chris may say something and and then Ed is like, I'm going to say whatever I want. This is my party. And just to also piggyback on what you're saying about how like Ed, the writing is almost like, seems like it could be coming from Maurice's mouth. He says something earlier about all the food that he's got here. He tells Michelle, maybe he's like, I got a baked Alaskan in the fridge as big as hell and half of Georgia, which is something that Maurice said earlier in the episode, like big as hell and half of Georgia. Um, yeah. I also just want to note something I forgot to mention in that first scene when Maurice is going down like the list of things that Ed needs to know. He tells Ed about this like service, this, I think like the chalet gourmet service or something that would deliver things for him. Like if you need anything, just add it to the tab and they'll del- deliveries come on this day. So they'll bring you that. And for this feast, it seems like he's ordered a lot from this service. As you mentioned, those flowers are going to cost quite a penny out here in Alaska, like off season. And, um, yeah, so big lavish dinner. Ed is sort of enjoying himself a little too much at others' expense. Oh, he even, I re- forgot, he even like uh, gives some critical notes to Michelle. He's like, oh, Michelle, I read your article. And she's like, wow, you read it? Like she seems excited. But that excitement is quickly dashed because Ed has all these like, like just like very critical notes for her. That, that's what I got in this scene. Uh, it does end with Chris excusing himself. Like he leaves straight up just because uh, Ed is kind of picking on him. Yeah. I don't even know if the advice that Ed gives to Michelle is valid or not. It right. seems like it is. I'm led to believe that it is. Okay. Because the advice that he gives to Chris is ultimately true. It, yeah. It's harsh, it's true, it's true. but it's true. So possibly it's the same for Michelle. Um, and she did have doubts about it in the beginning of the episode. She says like, Hey, I don't know. Maybe I could, maybe I could cut out a couple of these paragraphs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's true. something good to it. And that's also where it kind of loses me on this plot line because we're meant to believe that Ed mimicking Maurice is bad because he's using up all his money. He's taking advantage of the house. He's doing all sorts of things they're not supposed to be doing. But then, it ultimately pays off for him at the end. And we'll, we'll get to that later. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, I just wanted to make a quick note of that. Yeah. But the very next scene that we see of Ed is, well, surprise, Maurice comes back early. <laughs> Turns out the person he went hunting with blew out his back. He catches him in the middle of the act of him pretending that he owns the place. And, you know, rightfully so, Maurice goes ballistic. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Ed is just like coming downstairs singing. I don't even know what song that is. He's like singing. Oh, to himself. you don't know that song? What song is it? That's from Oklahoma. Oh, <laughs> the very first song. Which is hilarious because that's something Maurice would sing. He <laughs> loves those show tunes. It's amazing. And uh, you know the 
no one cleaned up after dinner. You know, it's just still the plates well, come are on. out. Like, who does that? And uh, the flowers are, like, starting to wilt on the table already. And he's talking, Ed is talking to this imaginary person, Beatrice, like this imaginary butler. And he's, like, barking orders, like, clean this up. Don't nick the pewter or whatever, the silver. Try to be careful here. And it's a cool reveal because Ed is just walking along this long table and the camera follows the pan. This movement continues past Ed into the open doorway where Maurice has just been standing there this whole time watching it all. As you said, he lets loose. He screams at Ed and um, he's like ordering Ed to take off the smoking jacket, get this stuff cleaned. It's kind of a little funny, little beat at the end because when Ed runs off, Maurice looks around and he sees the like some wrinkle cream uh, that Ed had pointed out to someone in an earlier scene that Maurice keeps wrinkle cream. And so Maurice sees that and he's like, oh crap, someone like found my wrinkle cream. And so Maurice like shuts up immediately, but it's a little funny little beat at the end, I guess. Uh, the next scene, Ed is talking over with Shelly at the brick and talking about how he got fired and then rehired. Basically, he's going to be chopping wood until he can pay off his uh, debt to Maurice now. But this is where he sort of explains to Shelly the sickness of wealth, thinking that you know something that others don't because you have things that they don't have and putting yourself above other people. Ed is realizing he got... He got uh, influenced by the feeling of this wealth at that at that uh, extravagant dinner party, and um, really, really was out of line. Yeah, but he mostly places the blame on the house, like the physical yeah. house itself, and he compares it to The Shining, where yes. he says, "Like Jack Nicholson was perfectly fine until he came into the house, and that transformed him." This is also where I have tension with Shelley and Holling's plotline because Ooh, Ed yeah. makes it a point. Yeah, Ed says, that's where she picks up some of that, I guess. Yeah, that that advice would be like, hey, you know, I wasn't even myself when I was in that house. You think that you want this house, but in reality, you got no idea what you're stepping into. And that kind of makes sense on Ed's thing because Ed's stepping into Maurice's house. Mm-hmm. That's not him. So, of course, it's going to feel alien and change him. It's going to mold him. It does something that is just not Ed. Mm-hmm. But in the case of Shelly and Holling, they're buying a house. They're making it theirs. Like the house doesn't necessarily define you if you're the person that's going to turn it into your home. Ed was never going to turn Maurice's home into actually his place. He was just house sitting. So that's why I don't think that example works very well between these two characters. Those are two different things going on. Yeah, it seems like it's a jumping off point for Shelley's character to start thinking that way, but it's not a great, as you're saying, it's not a great like link necessarily of these themes and plots. It's just like a just sort of like a easy jumping off connecting piece to try to join that. But uh but yeah, he says like I think he says this because I wrote it down. How do you know you want to live in a house? It changes you. But I also want to also I'll, this is a different from coming from a different angle. Ed is not entirely right about The Shining either. I don't know if you've ever watched The Shining. We've probably talked about it before, but you're familiar at least with sort of what happens in The Mm -hmm. Shining. Well, it's not entirely true that Jack Nicholson's character was a really nice guy and then the house changed him. I never read the story, but at least in the famous, like the Stanley Kubrick movie, 
I think it could be heavily inferred that Jack Nicholson's character is like a child abuser and has like a very rocky relationship, at least with his wife and his son. And he's probably like a recovering alcoholic. So yeah, that's that's another misinterpretation from Ed. Yeah, the house brings out the worst in people, but it, it was there to begin with. Yeah, mm-hmm, there you go. Uh, so yeah, that's that little connecting scene there. We've got the next scene with Ed. He goes to apologize to Chris. Chris is in the garage working on something and Ed is just completely apologetic. He says, it's kind of a bad apology too. He's like, I'm supposed to be your friend, Chris. And friends don't care if you have unrealized potential. I like you just the way you are. You know, basically saying, like, I like you as a failure, basically. <laughs> and Chris is like, uh, it's whatever. You're fine. I forgive you. Like, you know, because as we kind of hinted at before, the advice did seem to work for Chris. He's like basically saying like a healthy dose of tough love was exactly what I needed because I started photographing this um my dust mite sculpture. You remember that from a uh, Might Makes Right? He's got that big metal sculpture. And he's like, I owe it all to you, Ed. Like, you got me, you lit a fire under my butt. So now I'm like out, I broke the camera out, I'm taking pictures. And yeah, seemed it all seemed to work out. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's a resolution. I get where it's coming <laughs> from. I, I just don't think it's being executed very well. It's just an easy, easy uh, slap, slap an ending on that one. Yeah. Is that the end of anyway. that? Is that the end of the plot line? I think it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> I was just about to bring us to the very final one. Okay. Yeah. Go go tee us up there. Yeah. It's going to be with Joel. And in fact, that's where the cold open comes from. It's Joel and I don't think we actually get a name from this fella right here, but they're just sitting at, you can feel the precipitation. I want to say is the word, Mm. or maybe even humidity, but not heat humidity. Just you can feel the chillness mm, of the mm, air because mm-hmm. it's like small flakes of snow falling down where him and that fella are just sitting around and they're waiting. And then Marilyn shows up. She's got mail and she's got all these things for all the townsfolk. And Joel thinks that she's come to visit her. But in actuality, she's here for the potlatch for somebody else. The potlatch for Joey Pitka's first kill. He says, oh, that's great. And Marilyn apparently knows Joey's mom, Estelle, from high school. So it's like, oh, okay. Oh, I wanted to say really quickly Mm -hmm. the kill itself is a big black bear. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They mentioned that. Another bear. We will see more animals, I think, uh, at least when they're like uh, butchering and preparing the food for this celebration. But in this scene, yeah, Joel initially is like, oh, it's great to see you. You came up here all, all came up all the way here to check on me. I'm fine. I'm doing great. And like you said, she's actually, it's kind of embarrassing, but she's just not really here for him. She's here for the duicky. I think she kind of pronounces it. She kind of says, I think the way she pronounces it is duicky, which this is interesting. There's a lot of words like this in this episode and then in previous episodes where we get some of this native language and the spelling in the subtitles looks completely different than the pronunciation. For example, when Marilyn says duaki, the spelling is more like dukaak. So I'm not entirely sure, but I'm just going off of the audio track, like what we hear the actors say. Mm. Oh, I, I was kind of taken out of it, but I wanted to say, like, how much were you taken out of it when Joel started speaking Tlingit perfectly <laughs> with that fella? That was in, I mean, wasn't that in the... Uh... <laughs> The upriver is it upriver? Yeah, that's the episode where we we're like, what? <laughs> he just like immediately <laughs> learned the language because yeah, there was never. We've spoken about this already on the podcast, but there's never like 
a time jump that's like four months later or like, you know, they could have even done like one year later. I would have been cool with that. You know, that would have I mean, been it would have made more sense yeah. <laughs> if it was one year later. Do you know how long it takes to learn a language? <laughs> he's, he's got immersion, man. <laughs> yeah. And, <He's> like, fine. <laughs> and we're led to believe that it's only been like a month. Yeah. Maybe a month and a half at this point. At first it was like... I don't a know. Few weeks. It felt like they said that. yeah, it felt like it was pretty quick when they got um Phil and Michelle up there. I don't know. Anyway, next scene, we got Marilyn uh and Joel kind of walking around through Mananash. She says she used to come here in the summer, so she loves the, you know, she, she has memories of this place. It's been a long time. Oh, here's another uh word that I I might have missed. Maybe this is uh huh, maybe this uh I forgot what it's for. But it's uh, the way they say it is disyadi, and the spelling was uh, pisyadi or something in the in the subtitles. Hmm. Do you remember? Maybe they're talking about like fishing, or they're talking about some sort of celebration there. I think it means like moon or something. Oh like that. yeah, there's like some some sort of moon festival or moon something. They, I think Marilyn remembers that um, when she last came. They bump into another character who I hope we see more of. He seems like a pretty uh, fun actor, this guy, Mr. Two Clocks. And Marilyn recognizes him as like the best fisherman in the Botsa River. Um, he's a, he's an interesting guy, well-spoken. He speaks in English with them. And he's got, um, his coat is like splitting. And a lot of the scenes, like his costuming is more like worn and torn, mm-hmm. threadbare. But he just seems like your average Joe. He invites them over later to try some um, say it root, which uh, again, the subtitle here is Ootcut. Ootcut roots, but they pronounce it say it. They do this later in the episode. And um, yeah, they're like, wow, that's pretty cool. We bumped into him. And, and Marilyn, as they're walking away, Marilyn just can't get over the fact that Joel has become quite close friends with this like mythical character of Mr. Two Clocks. Great name, by the way. Oh, yeah, Mr. Two Clock. <laughs> he is, I mean, it is kind of unfortunate, though, because when you say the word two and clock, you're immediately reminded of that idiom. Uh, broken clock is right two times a day. Yeah. <laughs> but what I thought was interesting was that Mr. Two Clocks was teaching Joel how to think like a salmon. It, didn't they already have, like, a plot line in, like, season one, episode three? Yeah. I want to say about thinking like a, what was it, like a fish? Yeah, some dedicated fans of Northern Exposure will recall Uncle Anku in uh, the second episode, Brains, Know-How, and Native Intelligence, teaching Joel how to think like a fish. It's never determined whether or not Joel learns that, but uh, he's going back to school, I guess, with Mr. Two Clocks to learn how to think like a salmon specifically. Yeah, I don't know what I don't know what that's there for there at the end. I guess just like a little nod to diehard fans of Northern Exposure, perhaps. Yeah. The next scene is going to be them eating the roots that he talked about. They're at his home. They're having a pretty nice dinner right there with the roots. And this is where the crux of the episode comes in, where Joel was having issues with Marilyn, kind of dragging him back to his past self. Because Marilyn makes a comment that there's no way Joel could be hunting bears or doing anything associated with that. Because the first time that he saw bear liver, he ran away. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Joel's like, oh, I'm so excited for this uh, celebration of Joey Pitka's first kill. I heard they got like strips of bear fat. I'm really excited to taste that. And Marilyn's like, I can't believe you're saying that. Like, like you're saying, Charles, 
She's like, the first time you saw bear liver, you like ran. And two clocks is like, wait, what? And then Marilyn is just, you know, having a lot of fun at Joel's expense here telling these, there are funny stories, you know, Joel shouldn't be so, um, he should be more, I guess, what are we calling him? Like enlightened, you know, he should be at this comfortable place where he thinks it's, you know, he can laugh at, at this as well. But mm-hmm. Joel is not very pleased at the fact that Marilyn is like busting his chops here, revealing this uh, original Joel, you know, who would who would run from bear liver if he saw it. So, so that as you're saying, like that that becomes the what is starting to unravel in this plot line, specifically the relationship between Joel and Marilyn here. I did want to mention because I wrote it down at this point when I was watching the episode. We haven't talked about this yet, but is Joel wearing a wig for this like Mananash stuff? Like, is he? Is that real hair or not? It's hard to tell uh, at this point. It looks real. It's like, I, I want to say they just use hair gel to like bring it down, it's right? It's like, yeah, the front is kind of straight, but the back is still curly and it's like long. I don't know. Yeah, I really don't know if this is a wig or what. Listener, perhaps you can tell a lot better than we can, but uh, let us know your thoughts. Is it a wig? Maybe we'll do like a Twitter poll or something and see <laughs> what they think. Yeah, well, Joel confronts Marilyn in the next scene about that. They're setting up for the potlatch, and Joel makes a... He he tries to make the argument that there were two Joels. That there was the past Joel, who is a creature of comfort, lived in New York, couldn't see past Hudson River, thought birds were annoying, all that stuff. (laughs) And then there's, like, the new Joel, who has found peace and understands uh, the value in all of those things. The, The big thing is that he's trying to convince Marilyn that he's changed. He is not the same Joel as he was uh, a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, and it like it makes sense. You know, this is supposed to be a different, more enlightened Joel, and there has been a lot of change. Like, I think real change with Joel's character. But there's some deeper understanding that Marilyn can see, and it's the reason why she's not, she doesn't really respond. <laughs> or, you know, it's just Marilyn. She doesn't talk. Joel does all the talking. Speaking of that, just like from this scene on, we get to sense like just that relationship between Marilyn and Joel. It's never going to change. It seems like, because like when she's here and for the rest of this episode, he just sounds a lot more like his old self. He doesn't seem like the uh, careful thought out enlightened Joel Fleischman of man and Ash. This seems more like, you know, season one, Joel Fleischman or something like spitting his mouth, you know, and Marilyn just, sitting there and not responding. <laughs> yeah, I, I can kind of see two ways to look into this. Uh, the first is that I think that when you're with different groups of people, you act oh, different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like a major thing. It happens with everybody. That's why, you know, it's kind of hard to say what, quote unquote, your true self is because yourself is constantly changing, whether you're talking to your families, friends, acquaintances, uh, coworkers, classmates, whatever. You're probably putting on a different role with yourself on there. So when Joel is with Marilyn, he goes back to the certain way. But the thing that makes it a little bit different, in my opinion, is that it's not like they're going back to like a particular relationship between the two. He's just going back to his past self, yeah. like entirely. Mm-hmm. And that's where they're trying to make the distinction right here. Because if they had gotten, if the plot point was about Joel returning back to the way he acts around Marilyn and just Marilyn herself, I would say that's perfectly fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying like, okay, well, I'm like this new person when I put on a, you know, a suit and go to a fancy, fancy bank to work or something like that. (laughs) I think it's fine to go back 
to that version of yourself when you were with this person. But in this episode's context, they're trying to say he goes back entirely into a past self. Yeah. Well, I think he, I think it's more he's fearing that he's fearing because he realizes that it's still him in there. And we'll, we'll get there, I guess. The next scene is him coming clean to Marilyn and basically, so this is, he's butchering some sort of like, I don't know what that animal is, like a bigger animal. He's like butchering some meat while Marilyn is like pulling feathers from geese or something. And um, Joel is basically admitting is like, I'm falling back on my old ways. You shatter any inner peace that I've managed to find, he says to Marilyn. And this is explored through, you know, Joel is just talking with Marilyn, trying to be, I mean, Joel, Joel, we know Joel loves Marilyn. So he's trying to relate with her and he's talking about those geese that she's like pulling the feathers from. And he's like, oh yeah, those are some beautiful white geese or something. And he's talking about like taxonomy or some sort of very scientific thing. And then Joey Pitka, the boy and his mom, Estelle, which is Marilyn's friend, they come in and Joel's like, yeah, I was just talking with Marilyn about these amazing geese. And he kind of like goes on this nerdy tangent and Joey and Estelle are just like, okay, cool. We're going to go over there now. Like, you know, like he's, I don't know. I, I, I don't like, I don't like this. And the reason why is because I don't think that Joel's doing anything wrong. I think it's kind no. of interesting. He's just trying to make conversation. It's not like he's being blunt or over demanding or anything like that. All he's doing is like, you know, I'm talking about some pretty interesting facts about Darwin and the other townsfolk. I don't think, well, I also don't think they're like giving him a cold shoulder. I think mostly what's happening is Joel's anxiety. I guess you could read it either way, but the way I read it was, you know, they're, they're just normal man and Ash. Like they're not dissing him for talking about Darwin or whatever. It's not like, but they also don't invite him to talk more though. No, I think it's more just like Joel realizing himself. Like he's like, Oh crap. Like I'm, I sound like I'm crazy or, or I'm sound like I'm old Joel. <laughs> I just think that like, you don't, you don't need to t- get rid of that part of yourself. No, which like is, if this is a part of Joel, which is this part the, of him that that's what the episode ends on too. It's like not about him getting rid of his past. It's about recognizing the past. At least that's what I, that's what I, well, I, I read it as like, he's, he's growing mm-hmm. and like Marilyn is acknowledging that, the change that he's putting into himself right now is true and it's genuine. Mm-hmm. And they didn't outright say that this old part of Joel is getting deleted or if it's, you know, being shoved away. But I, I think that more of the, more of the praise is being put on Joel actually changing. Whereas I, in this particular scene, I'm trying to make the argument that I don't think he needs to change this particular aspect of Joel unless I'm reading it. No, you know, wrong. I I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think he even has a line later, which we'll get to where I don't think it is to me. I don't think it is about him changing the old way. I think it is about him recognizing that the past is part of him and he shouldn't try to escape it necessarily. Well, we'll get Mm. to that because there's a, there is a quote that I think will tie into that, which might be the next scene. Let's see. There is like, um, there is a scene with Mr. Two Clocks and Marilyn, just them alone. And they're going to work on some of the ceremonial garments for the celebration here. And they're trying to do something with like leather and goose feathers. And Two Clocks asks for Marilyn to pass some of the seal grease 
And so she picks up the bowl that the seal grease is contained within, and it's this wonderfully carved wooden bowl, very ornately carved. Uh, she admires the carving, and Two Clocks says, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful little bowl. It was a gift from Dr. Fleischman. And Marilyn's like, that's very nice. Like, where did he get it? And Two Clocks says, no, he made that. That was like his hands. And she says, you know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Like this, something like this takes patience. It takes time. And Two Clocks is just there to say like, you know, like Joel Fleischman, he's a funny, he's a funny critter. He's a funny fellow, but you got to remember that it's just, it's a long way from New York to Mananash. So I guess this would play in Charles with what you're seeing. It's like, you know, he has definitely undergone change and he's no longer the old Dr. Fleischman. That's what I think this scene would try to influence to Marilyn. But I still think we've got more coming to argue that it's kind of like a, there's a duality. All right. Well, the next scene, Marilyn goes to bring a gift for Joel. You know, Joel gave a gift to two clocks. Marilyn's got some sort of gift for Joel and he's completely downtrodden. He's just sitting there. He's he's actually trying to like nail up an antenna or something. He's like, I want real music. I want the news. I'm going to revert back to my old self now, basically is what he's saying. And Marilyn's like, cool, whatever. Just like, I got you a gift. He's like, no, it's whatever. You don't have to bring that to me. Like this whole scene, she's like, open the gift, open the gift. And this was like the quote that I was leaning on when he basically says like, let's see, what was I thinking that I could just walk away from everything, just escape my culture myself? I tell you, Marilyn, the most pathetic thing is I really actually thought I was getting somewhere. Then you show up and it's like, it's like the Raven himself sent you down here to put me to the test. And boy, did I flunk. First off, what is the Raven? What is that? Uh, is he referring to like the Raven Festival? I can't even remember the story there, but I don't understand. Isn't there a story with the Raven and the sun? Yeah. What is that? How does that? I just can't remember how it applies. I don't remember the whatever. I, I just assumed, honestly, when I when I heard the scene, <laughs> I was like, I'm assuming that's something in, in the culture. <laughs> yeah. Like it, it's some sort of nefarious door darkener. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I actually could see here where, because what happens is the gift that Marilyn gives them are these babichas or whatever mm-hmm. that it's some of the things that they were making at two clocks house. It's like a, some sort of ceremonial gift. I don't fully understand like the whole resonance of what's going on here, but basically just Joel is being like, hold up. You Marilyn are giving this to me. So it must have some huge significance other than it just being a gift. It's like a very strong message that she's giving. And she tells him this is to help, this is to help you go lightly through life or something like that. And he says, I don't deserve this. And she says, you will. So I can't actually see how this could show like Marilyn being like, you are going to evolve. You know, you're going to leave your past behind and grow or whatever. But I also do think what's cool, at least that Joel, it's funny because he doesn't view it as a, as a to me as a, um, for me, this is like a win, but he views it as a loss. But He's seeing that like he could never escape his past, which I think is a great uh, synthesis, I guess, you know, of like, you can't escape your past. Don't be afraid of it. You're also, you know, it's not necessarily that he like failed at becoming better. He's going to, he will go lightly through life as Marilyn says, but there's a, there's going to be a synthesis of the two. And I think that 
reminds me of that first scene when he's trying to explain to Marilyn how he's like, he's changed and he's not the old Joel. And she just keeps looking at him because she knows that, you know, it's true that he's changed, but it's also untrue that you're not the old Joel. Like you can't have both, you know, you are both, if that makes sense. Oh, I, I see what you mean right there. Uh, yeah, I took the gift as being like, it's an acknowledgement from Marilyn that he is indeed experiencing growth. And I'm not knocking that yeah, at all. That, that does make, that also does make sense. Like, it seems like maybe this is her saying, oh, actually, you're right, Joel. That could be it, too. Yeah, I'm not knocking it, but saying, like, growth is bad. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that the idea that you need to completely get rid of who you were, mm -hmm. or at least what you define yourself as, I, I don't know. I found that to be wrong. No, to be like I uh, totally you need to entirely that, dump that. What you're saying, and especially yeah. with the line that Joel says, and it could be read in different manners. But he says, "I had to give up my culture," mm -hmm. and if he means like the culture of the hustle and bustle of a city, sure, fine, that's fine. <laughs> if you're saying like the culture of a Jewish man, yeah, I don't know. I'm not fine with that. Up. I don't think that's good. I agree with you there fully, which is I guess why I tried to interpret it the other way. But looking through it now, it could. I think that's possibly an issue with this is that it could be regarded as what we don't want, Charles, what you're describing, because Joel is just saying so much that he's a failure. And then Marilyn is saying, you will succeed by, you know, it's like the way it ends. I don't know. It made sense to me from what I explained my reading of that scene, but it, it also seems like it could be interpreted in many ways. And one of those could could suggest that Joel is like killing the past and going to like transcend into this greater thing. But I hope, I hope to believe that, uh, I hope to believe that the next episode is not going to forget the lessons here. And maybe hopefully Joel will still, uh, have a connection to his past and his culture and just like the old Joel, you know, the Darwin nerd science doctor <laughs> along with the, um, can speak, he can speak Tlingit now or whatever. I don't care. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the episode, you know, it's a pretty standard, simple ending where they're finally at the Potlatch dinner and, you know, they talk about the environment and say, like, oh, it's great. The food's, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then uh -huh. Joel says, hey, Marilyn, do you want to dance? And she doesn't say a word, just gets up. Uh, they start dancing onto the floor. Oh, pan out, get a shot of the building. Yeah. Boom. Actually, Marilyn asks Joel to dance. Oh, yeah. you're right. Which is cool. Right, you know, right, it's right. it's great. It's great. They uh they have a little it's like a little well the the first song that plays is sort of like a waltz, but it's kind of uh I don't know what you would describe this music. Kind of reminds me of like a Cajun music feel. I don't know if it's necessarily that, but there is accordion, there's fiddle, and there's a hand drum. I like that, that there's a native playing the hand drum. And um they're doing the little shimmy dance on the dance floor with the all the couples, like you said beautiful exterior ending got uh did you comment like there's like sounds of like there's like an owl hooting and like some coyotes yeah, howling isn't it, uh, that's pretty fun. yeah it was in the subtitles love it okay charles we've reached the point in our podcast where we're going to invite on a guest so for the sixth season we're asking fans of northern exposure to come on and talk about the television series the sixth season and the episode in question so today's episode mikasa sukasa we've got Ariel, who some people may know from Facebook, he created the Chef Adam Facebook group, and we've got him today to talk about this episode. Let's hear his thoughts. Greetings, Sicilians. Ariel here to talk a little bit about Northern Exposure. 
Northern Exposure came to me when I was 11 years old at the original time of its original airing, season one. I really fell in love with the show. I just loved it. It was totally different than anything that was on at the time. I watched it through, and probably it wasn't until sometime in my 20s when I started buying seasons on DVD and rewatching uh, all of the seasons. It just became part of, you know, part of the Northern Exposure philosophy really wove its way into my own philosophy and, and into my own life uh, in many ways. I always enjoyed the music of Northern Exposure, the art of Northern Exposure, the literature of Northern Exposure, the cooking and the food of Northern Exposure, the philosophy of Northern Exposure. It all appealed to me and I'm a bit quirky, and so all of the quirky little moments were delightful, which is really what led me to start my Facebook group back in 2014. And uh, I've just continued to always have been a fan. I've watched through the se the series at least a dozen times, and for many of my favorite episodes, I've watched dozens of times. Uh, but having said that, let's uh, jump into Season 6, Episode 11, Mikasa Sukasa. It's a good episode. It's another three-thread episode, so I'll probably just tackle each thread individually. The episode both begins and ends. The beginning scene and ending scene are both in Mononash which is, of course, one of the threads of the episode. But the episode is called Mikasa Sukasa, and so in many ways the main thread is Ed house-sitting for Maurice. It's also the thread that has, I would say, the most characters in it. Uh, and the reason for that is, is in Mononash, it's really just Marilyn and Joel and all of the Mononash locals. But in terms of regular cast members, it's really just Joel and Marilyn in that thread. And the same goes for the third thread, which is Shelley and Holling and their doomed house hunt, uh, because Holling doesn't really want a house. That thread has a lot of Shelley, Holling, Maggie, who's their real estate agent, and Officer Szymanski, who is trying to sell her house to them. And then it has Randy, of course, uh, baby Randy. I noticed the only character that shows up in both the house thread and in the house hunting thread is Walt, uh, interestingly enough. So I'll, I'll just go over, you know, the Shelley Holling thread first. Um, yeah, you know, it's uh, there's a there's an element of Holly versus Szymanski there where they're, you know, really fighting, you know, and she refers to him as a chiseler. And it kind of harkens back to their fight scene. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say about that thread, honestly. But it's a good one. Some good scenes in there. The Mononash thread is excellent. I think a lot of us are very partial to Mononash scenes. Uh, Mr. Two Clocks, great character. You know, Marilyn definitely showed up a little different um, in this episode, I think, as many characters did uh, in the fifth and sixth seasons. Um, where they're sitting down and she starts kind of making fun of Joel running from the bear. She really, if you watch it, she shows a, a very kind of different side 
of herself that uh, clearly she was being written a little bit differently uh, for this episode. And then at the end where she makes the, the babiches for Joel is a very touching scene, very uh, emotional and, and touching kind of scene. One thing that I found interesting is that Phil Capra does not show up in this episode anywhere and is only mentioned once during the scene where Chris is trying to borrow the chief's Hasselblad and he mentions that Doc Capra thinks, you know, would be a good idea. Uh, so that's interesting. One of my favorite lines in the series is in this episode and it's Mr. Two Clocks at the end of the episode. He comments, sure is tasty beaver tail, isn't it? And Marilyn says, oh, fresh. And I always chuckle at that line. I love it. I don't know why. I just think it's great. The house thread is a good one. A lot of characters, Eugene, Hayden, Walt, Michelle Capra, Chris, um, you know, it kind of just goes on and on. It's a good thread. The house kind of takes Ed over. I think Chris kind of was a little bit of a catalyst there. He was kind of egging Ed on a lot. Um, so I, I actually kind of partially hold Chris responsible for the house taking over Ed. Or really, I think it may have been the silk jacket that took over Ed in the beginning. Um, Maurice's wild silk smoking jacket. But it's a good episode. You know, it's uh, Ed sort of becomes Maurice in a lot of ways and is giving Michelle notes on her, you know, paper and this and that and the other. And, and the shining comparison is definitely apt here. But anyway, that's the episode. Great ending, as a lot of episodes have, where the music's playing and there's dancing in Montanash and you just see the village uh, from the outside at night and there's, you know, a fire going and the windows are lit with dancing and music and, and everyone having a good time. It's a beautiful, beautiful ending. And that's what I have to say about the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. That was Ariel with the thoughts for the episode. I gotta say, I had a lot of thoughts on what he had to say, but there were more like tangential thoughts that I never really thought about, and I, I kind of just springboarded mm -hmm. from Ariel's thoughts. Like, for instance, he talks about beginning and ending in Metanash, and he says that, like, you know, we all really like that place, we like what it means. And that got me thinking, I was like, you know, does Metanash represent something? Because mm -hmm. we know that, like, Sicily represents something. We can put a label to that city, we, we know what it's about. But for Menanash, was there enough buildup on there for us to be able to describe it, for us to be able to put a label on it? Is this like a purgatory for Joel? Hmm. Like, what do you think? Yeah, I think uh, I really liked what Smokey Bernstein had said in that episode uh, where we had them come on as a guest. That must have been upriver, yeah. Because I didn't even realize that Menanash, like if you Google search Menanash, that is a term. It's like some sort of maybe Buddhist philosophy or seeing that once you can see that there's nothing there, then you can see everything or something like that. Some very spiritual connotations there. I just thought they had made up the name, like the writers came up with a cool sounding word, but it very clearly is in reference to this idea. Um, so yeah, if I had to put the meaning, what is Mananash, the, the town, what does that represent? I liked what you said just then about a sort of purgatory. Definitely feels like that for Joel, but it, it maybe without the necessarily like the negative connotations that you would think of of purgatory. But 
That's such an interesting term to look at it. But but uh, I guess more of like a spiritual awakening, a transcendence, uh, this sort of plane of enlightenment that Joel has entered, um, but is, you know, will be, as we'll see throughout these episodes as we keep going, will still be sort of like coming back down to earth, you know, in some of these episodes. Yeah, it's something that we never really thought about that much. But, you know, in reality, it's really the only second location that we've ever been introduced to. It's always been Sicily. Mm-hmm. Sure, we've been to like, I don't know, like somebody's house Juno or something or like that. or Sleep Mute for like one episode Right, 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 right. Yeah. But that's always been like a little short. Mm-hmm. Guest star. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like that. Whereas Menonash seems like, you know, it's here to stay. It's got characteristics to it. Um, I just wish there was like a little bit more toward it that I can flesh out. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I guess, you know, it's season six, they're wrapping it up. This is just a place they're slotting Joel into. Yeah. They just don't really want to build into it. It's got a lot of broad strokes uh, of what it could represent, which I guess works in its favor in some ways. But yeah, I think what you said makes sense. It's like they're kind of, they've got to wrap it up too. This is season six and, you know, it's kind of hard to introduce something so quickly. One other small thought that I had was that Phil is called either Doc Capra or Phil Capra, which is three syllables either way. Doc Capra, Phil Capra. And then I realized Joel Fleischman is the same way. Joel Fleischman. So I thought that was just kind of like a thing I didn't think about. But I was like, wait a second, they do call him Doc Capra. Like it flows <laughs> off the tongue. Yeah. Three-syllable things are really nice. wonder if that's subcon- uh, subconscious or if intentional, but that's pretty interesting to notice. Uh, like, let's see, Maurice Minifield, that's a lot. Ed Chigliak, that's kind of a little more than three. I guess you, you could say it's three or four. Hauling Vincour, Shelley, T- there's a lot of fours. Mm-hmm. Chris Stevens, there we go, that's a three. Oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, Maggie O'Connell, that's four. I was trying to I was trying to think of the O is like part of it. I was like, yeah, that, that is. <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool, though. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, a couple notes that Ariel had pointed out. I didn't even think about this until Ariel mentioned it. But Hauling and Szymanski sort of having a uh, Hauling and Szymanski sort of being at odds in this episode definitely reminds us of their boxing match from season two, episode five, Spring Break. Uh, when Szymanski just wanted to fight and Holling, uh, you know, was pitted against her in the ring and was like, oh, I don't want to fight or whatever. And if I remember correctly, she like knocks him out or something, right? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's a little bit of a history there, perhaps, at least if you've been watching the show this long, you might remember that. That's a pretty good thing that Ariel points out. Some comments on Marilyn seeming different. I, I thought maybe... From what Ariel is sensing, it's like maybe her depiction is a little crueler, maybe kind of like harshly picking fun at Joel. You know, that whole scene when she's laughing with uh, two clocks about Joel being afraid of bear liver or whatever. It's like, can you believe like the first time he saw bear liver, he ran or whatever, and they were laughing about that. So they're like having fun at his expense. I think I mentioned like at that point, I was like, Joel should have been mature enough or enlightened enough to be able to laugh at himself, you know, Mm -hmm. but he was, he was not happy that Marilyn was kind of busting his chops at that point. And finally, for me, I thought it was really interesting that Ariel had said that he had watched this dozens of times, Mm -hmm. just a lot of times, not one dozen, dozens, Dozens, multiple. Yeah. And pointing out, you know, Ariel just 
always connected with the music of the show, the art, the literature, the cooking, the food, the philosophy, so many elements of what make up the show you could say is like good taste. You know, it's like, I don't know, at least I relate the same way. It's like all of the poetry that Chris reads on on air or the movies that Ed talks about. It's just got such good tastes in different forms of media, art, philosophy. Yeah, it's a lot of fun to watch a dramatic story unfold, but just um, appreciation of these different um, artistic ideas. So that was Ariel's thoughts on this episode. If you haven't checked it out already, go onto Facebook and check out the Chef Adam Facebook group. Ariel would definitely have to get you back or at least hear your thoughts later on um, Adam. I'm not even sure if he's going to be coming back this season. We'll see. But yeah, I mean, we got a whole Facebook group called Chef Adam. Definitely need to get Ariel's thoughts on this character that we all love. Uh, So Charles, we're going to be back next week with the 13th episode in season six. It's called Horns. And we're recording this after the fact. So you've already seen this episode. So I can't ask you to guess what happens in this episode, but I guess we can tease what happens in the next episode of Northern Exposure. Maurice starts a bottled water company in Sicily, outside of Sicily. Uh, Joel learns that his contract is up and he can finally leave Alaska. And we get a return of one of our favorite characters, Cal Ingram, uh, the... The violinist. Yes, the violinist who attempted to kill Maurice, potentially, and was sent to the mental hospital. He's going to be returning next episode. And Charles, will talk about that next week. I'll see you then. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Ariel for being our guest. You can check out his Facebook group, Chef Adam, on Facebook. And if you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.